Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today, we're talking about a new concept in celiac disease, which could truly change people's lives. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, celiac disease. Um, a brand new paper just came out of the American College of, of Gastroenterology's uh, journal and really kind of takes a look at a new concept in uh, celiac disease, which we're going to talk about. You know, again, we're a little early days with this, but it certainly seems to have the potential to dramatically change the lives of patients with celiac disease. And so we really thought it was worth kind of taking a look at, even though it's a relatively uh, uh, early study in, in progression of this drug. So um, as you know, celiac disease is a, a big problem in the United States, they estimate about one in 100 people worldwide have true celiac disease, and far more patients claim uh, a gluten intolerance where they're not probably truly a diagnostic for uh, celiac disease, but for some reason, uh, certain gluten-containing foods cause symptoms in them, so that's probably a, a far higher percentage, but we're going to focus on the people who have true, you know, diagnostically proven celiac disease. It's, it's a permanent T-cell mediated neuropathy, which is caused by the ingestion of gluten, which is the major protein factor in wheat, rye, and barley. So it's just about in almost all foods that Americans eat just about, um, really in any sort of pasta or bread or cookies or anything along those lines is probably going to have uh, gluten in it. Um, it was, again, for a long time thought to be rare um, in people, but it, again, more recent data has suggested really two things. One, it was far more common than we thought it is, and that's because it's a lot easier to diagnose now. And two, prevalent studies have suggested that the uh, incidence of uh, disease has definitely increased in the last three or four decades, and there's some theories about why that would be. A notable feature, however, in celiac disease is a wide variation in clinical presentation. Many patients with celiac disease don't even know they have it because they have no symptoms. Uh, many have uh, GI side effects like, you know, bloating, diarrhea, stomach pain, stuff like that. And then some actually have, have less gastrointestinal symptoms and some extraintestinal symptoms, uh, which can include absorptive things like iron deficiency, anemia, and stuff like that. Now, in the old days, the only way to diagnose celiac disease was literally doing endoscopy and getting a small uh, bowel biopsy, which of course is pretty invasive, pretty expensive, and is not going to get done a whole lot. Uh, however, the uh, development of biomarkers, which uh, are, are fairly sensitive and specific, has really uh, abrogated the need for biopsy-confirmed celiac disease in, 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 in a lot of patients. And so you can um, often make the diagnosis now without having to go through a small bowel biopsy and just actually just, you know, getting some, some lab, uh, lab tests done. Uh, we talked about the prevalence, again, pooled incidence in women and men are about 17.4 and 7.8 per 100,000 patient years, respectively. And as I mentioned, there, there's pretty good data that suggests that, that the incidence has increased, probably, again, due to the simplification of, of diagnosing it, but also because of the modernization and globalization-related changes in dairy practices, including just basically the increased use of dietary gluten, especially in convenience food. As you might imagine, there's some genetic factors. And in fact, if, if you have a, a parent or a sibling with a celiac disease, the, the current recommendations is that all all first-degree relatives should be checked for it as well because the incidence is fairly high. There's also a fairly high crossover with type 1 diabetes in children with, with uh, uh, celiac disease. That's something else to kind of keep in mind as well. Uh, also, um, uh, there's some skin diseases. Atopic dermatitis seems to be fairly high in patients with celiac disease as well. So, uh, you know, there's a number of, of, of other manifestations that we're going to talk about. So why does celiac disease cause problems in some patients? Well, again, you know, gluten is, is the, the primary protein in, in a lot of 
wheat-based or, or rye-based foods. Um, it is partially digested by a combination of, of some of the uh, digestive enzymes in your body, as well as small intestinal microbiota, which help uh, break it down. These are then um, transported mainly through transcellular pathways to the lamina propria, which of course is the, the first part of the small intestine where most of your food is absorbed. There is uh, a enzyme called tissue transglutamase, uh, which is expressed in many cell types and is secreted during inflammatory conditions to the extracellular matrix. And this deaminates the glutamine residues and glutein peptides, which enhances the efficiency of, of the peptide binding to antigen providing cells. And so in some patients, this, this signaling of binding to the antigen presenting cell can trigger the, uh, the release of helper 1T cells that then secrete pro-inflammatory mediators such as interferon, interleukin, and tumor necrosis factor. Um, and then basically that causes damage and breakdown of the lamina propria. And, and basically the mucosa starts to break down is actually changed. Um, that can lead some of the, some of the symptoms, but it can also lead to uh, decreased absorption of certain foods and things along those lines and vitamins and minerals and stuff like that. Also, yeah, this pro-inflammatory process is not just occurring in the GI tract. There's some, as I said, some extracellular manifestations as well. And so that's kind of the basics of, of, of kind of what happens in, in celiac disease. And so the treatment is basically avoiding gluten, right? And so we'll, we'll talk about that here in just a second. As I said, the classic symptoms of celiac disease are diarrhea and weight loss. They're directly related to the GI tract. Abdominal pain is actually pretty common as well. Um, however, in the last 20 years or so, we've discovered that actually there's a number of extraintestinal manifestations of celiac disease going beyond the GI tract. Um, now, some of these aren't all that surprising, as you might imagine, patients who are not absorbing calcium and vitamin D are going to be increased risk of, of osteoporosis and fractures. Uh, but there's some other things as well. Um, this activation of the uh, uh, pro-inflammatory cascade in the GI tract can lead to increased risks of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a small but significant increase in intestinal adenocarcinoma. And, you know, again, some retrospective studies suggest that, that perhaps the overall cancer risk in general is higher in these patients. Uh, there's some neurological complaints associated with, with celiac disease, neuropathy, which again may be just from, from B12 deficiency or, or other vitamin deficiencies. But there's some, uh, some retrospective studies, again, suggesting an association with celiac disease and early cognitive impairment and ataxia, as well as some Parkinsonian symptoms, which is kind of interesting. Cardiovascular health, there may be some uh, link uh, some evidence suggests that atherosclerosis may, may be accelerated in patients with celiac disease, and so that might lead to, the, to an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, coronary disease, as well as cerebral vascular disease and stroke. Uh, in women, there's some reproductive health issues. Uh, women with celiac disease tend to have late, late menarche. They tend to have an increased risk of infertility and miscarriages, and they tend to have early menopause as well. And finally, uh, there's some psychiatric uh, mental health issues. Uh, depression and anxiety is significantly higher in patients with celiac disease compared to controls. And as you might imagine, eating dis uh, disorders would be as well. So the big problem, of course, is that the only treatment currently for celiac disease is to maintain a strict, strict gluten-free diet, which basically means, you know, anything with gluten, even small amounts of it, you, you really shouldn't have. And it isn't just that, but, but again, uh, if you're getting processed foods, any place that might have, even though the food itself may not contain gluten, if it's been cross-contaminated with uh, wheat particles or, or other types of, of gluten-containing particles, uh, if some people have celiac disease so sensitive that that'll alone is enough to, to, to trigger the symptoms of celiac disease. Probably the classic example of that is uh, any, any fast food chains, fresh French fries. So, you know, potatoes in and of themselves don't have gluten in them, but uh, most fast food places, when they deep fry their fries, they, they don't have a separate deep fryer for fries as opposed to any of the, you know, the chicken that they're deep frying with, with wheat coating or things along those lines. And so there's a lot of cross contamination. And so a lot of those patients can't have French fries in most fast food places 
because of that. And so as you might imagine, this leads to a lot of, of, of socioeconomic issues. Uh, gluten-free foods do exist, and certainly the amount and type of gluten-free foods has expanded significantly in the last 15 years, as we've got a lot more patients who claim a, a gluten insensitivity and want to try and maintain a gluten-free diet. So uh, I think food manufacturers have certainly seen a, a, a target a audience for that, and they certainly increase the amount of gluten-free foods, but it's still not nearly as much as gluten-containing foods. People with celiac have to be very careful when they go out to eat, because again, there's just a lot of places they can't eat at because they can't find anything to eat there because almost everything has gluten in it. Um, they can't drink beer, which uh, for me would be a kind of a problem. <laughs> I don't know, I drink a lot of beer, but 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 again, most beer does contain gluten, so that would be a real problem for some people who like to have beer. Um, and then uh, uh, again, just uh, it's expensive. Gluten-free food, though you can find it, is much more expensive than its gluten-containing components. And so basically, a gluten-free diet can be can be quite pricey as well as everything else, and that's certainly a problem with with the inflation of food that we've had similarly. So. You know, uh, many have said, well, you know, is there another way to, to attack uh, celiac disease beyond just this? And the answer is, you know, there's a lot of studies going on, taking a look at anti-inflammatories that target the GI tract or, you know, other ways to, to, to try and treat celiac disease. And, and the study we're going to talk about today is an interesting study with a drug called latagglutinase. And this is going to take a non anti-inflammatory approach, and it's basically enzyme supplementing therapy. So latin glutenase is a, uh, comprises of two enzymes designed to mitigate the impact of gluten exposure in patients who are trying to adhere to a gluten-free diet, but, but again, you know, have a difficult time doing that. It's currently in phase two studies and starting phase three studies and, and uh, you know, has the potential to, to be a real, no pun intended, game changer for how we uh, treat patients with celiac disease. Uh, basically how, how latin glutenase works, it's delivered orally as a liquid that functions in the stomach during a meal and basically helps reduce the bioavailability of immunogenic peptides after gluten exposure and works kind of that way. So it actually works kind of upstream from people even having the breakdown of Latin glutenase. And so basically a single dose of this stuff will, will basically keep most gluten from being absorbed because it, it, it basically helps break it down into a non-absorbable parts basically. So again, an interesting approach to the treatment of celiac disease and one that does not involve significant anti-inflammatories, which of course have their own side effects and stuff to worry about long-term. So the study we're going to talk about today was a phase two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study. Well, uh, the study uh, link in the show notes, and it was a study done in patients with confirmed celiac disease who are in remission, and they wanted to uh, assess this efficacy and safety of a 1,200 milligram dose of this Latin glutenase. Inclusion criteria, they looked at adult patients age 18 to 80 years who required to have physician-diagnosed biopsy-confirmed celiac disease. So these are people who actually did have small bowel biopsies that, that confirmed the diagnosis. They also needed to be on a gluten-free diet for longer than one year and have well-controlled disease uh, as evidenced by the measured ratio of villus to crypt height, so VD height, which is shown to be a good control of, of, of celiac diseases where people are basically able to eat no gluten at all. And the villus height uh, is the higher it is, basically the more healthy the small bowel is and more likely it's going to be able to absorb things and stuff like that. They did not look at TTG levels as a uh, marker of, of good control. And even though that's kind of the standard now, I mean, patients aren't going to subject themselves to a year long, you know, having a, an endoscopy every year to have a, a small bowel biopsy. And so uh, in the clinical world, basically how control of, of celiac disease and, and adherence to a gluten-free diet is made is usually by TTG levels at tissue trans transglutinase levels. Again, they had to have this gluten-free diet for greater than one year. They did check TTG levels and they were negative, but but again, that wasn't the primary way to enter the study. Uh, you needed to have a villus to crypt depth ratio 
of uh, two, um, basically, to, to maintain. And that, again, that's, that's thought to be a well-controlled celiac disease. They excluded patients who had active skin lesions associated with, with celiac disease, patients who had a history of any sort of colitis, because, of course, that's going to muddy the waters as far as the treatment effect. Uh, they had to have a no history of an IgE immediate reactions to wheat, because there are some people who have a separate wheat allergy, and patients who have type 1 diabetes, which certainly makes sense. How the study worked is there was a placebo run-in period that then uh, was about two weeks long. During that time, both arms of, of the study received placebo liquid. Uh, they also started a food diary where they uh, you know, wrote down all the foods they ate and also any symptoms that they had. These running kits, again, only contained the placebo, and the patients were instructed to ingest a single dose of the liquid once daily with their evening meal for 14 consecutive days. They did exclude patients who were not compliant, who didn't write in their diary, uh, et cetera, et cetera. After that run-in period, patients were randomized one-to-one to either placebo or 1,200 milligrams of lat glutenase. At the end of the treatment period, patients were evaluated, again, with the EGD with biopsy. They also looked at a variety of serologies, urinalysis, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the final visit, another serology test was performed. They also looked at routine laboratory tests for safety, as well as symptoms of celiac disease. So again, you know, a screening phase, a placebo run-in phase, where they did a biopsy at the start of the placebo run-in. Then they did a six-week gluten challenge after randomization to placebo or latagglutinase. They did then a that biopsy at day 42, and then a safety follow-up all the way all the way to day 70. Now, this stuff is interesting because latagglutinase comes not as a pill or a capsule. Actually, it's a solid powder that needs to be mixed with a flavoring packet and dissolved in water and then taken. So that will be a potential problem with, with this medication. Something tells me it probably doesn't taste all that well if, they, if it needs to be mixed with a flavoring packet. So it's something to kind of keep in mind. It is given once daily with an evening meal. So I guess some good news is that they don't have to take it with every single meal that they have, which is kind of nice. Uh, the outcomes, the primary outcome, again, was the change in that BCD uh, ratio. Again, it had to be 2.0 uh, to be considered in remission. And then secondary endpoint uh, was all these uh, labs like TTG and, and biopsy specimens and all that other stuff. They also looked at sim- symptoms based on diary and the presence of uh, complaint symptoms in the diary and other stuff. As far as the demographics, uh, mean age was 43. 74% of the patients were white um, because, again, the study was done in the United States. They only had about 60 patients in the study. So it was a relatively small study. Again, you know, what you'd expect in kind of a phase two study. Obviously, we're going to need a much larger phase three study to, to see what uh, if this can really be used and, and for how long and things along those lines. So what did they find in the study? What are the results and what are the implications? We'll talk about that right after a message from our sponsor, CE Impact. CE Impact's memberships help you connect your learning to practice with unique education like this podcast. Go to ceimpact.com to learn more. We are back uh, with Game Changers talking about latagglutinase and a recent phase two study that suggests that it might have some use in patients with celiac disease. And so we were talking about the stu- uh, study previously, and we can go on to the, to the results. And basically, they looked at this VH to CD ratio, at which in both placebo and, and the active drug arms at the start of the study were basically equal to each other during the gluten challenge after six weeks. And basically, they gave patients gluten, usually in the form of breadcrumbs, which is interesting. Uh, um, During the six-week period, what they found was that the patients had significant increases in all immunogenic markers. They found that the patients in the placebo arm had a a significant increase in their VHCD levels. And so that, again, suggests that once they started having these uh, eating gluten foods, they uh, started to see changes in the pro-inflammatory cytokines and and, and mediators associated with celiac disease. But also they saw a difference in the small bowel biopsy that uh, suggested there was already damage to the uh, 
uh, small bowel uh, just from this six-week uh, challenge of, of being on gluten, which again tells you that it doesn't take much for patients with true celiac disease to really start to get into trouble as far as, far as uh, damage to their small bowel um, when, they, when they start to eat gluten. So again, small bowel biopsy found that uh, the, all the histological markers were significantly increased in the, in the placebo arm compared to the drug arm. They also found that di diarrhea, abdominal pain, and other scores that they did in their diary also increased in the placebo arm, but not in the drug arm. So bottom line was over the six weeks after getting gluten challenges and looking at biopsies that the placebo arm saw a uh, increase in pro-inflammatory markers, as well as an increase in symptoms of, of celiac disease, whereas the drug arm basically stayed at baseline and there was no significant increase. So a, a pretty big outcome, I think, for, for a, a drug for treating celiac disease. The outcomes for symptoms did not reach statistical significance, but they significantly numerically favored the, uh, the drug as opposed to placebo. My guess is with only a small amount of patients in it, this drug was, the study was not powered to, to, to find a difference between those two, because again, the primary outcome was not symptoms, but this change in VHCD ratio, basically. So I, I was still not put off by that, because when you take a look at the numbers there, they, they strongly favor the drug as compared to placebo. They went out to 70 days, again, looking at, at laboratory markers and did not find any ADR differences between groups. That kind of makes sense because, again, this drug really isn't absorbed. It basically is, is a local, uh, these are local enzymes, which basically just break down gluten in your GI tract upstream, basically. So it really wouldn't surprise me if there ends up not being a lot of side effects from this drug because like drugs that aren't systemically absorbed, they tend to have just local symptoms and just GI symptoms. But again, they didn't find any of that. So basically, the, you know, the study found that the patients who, who, who took the, the medication, uh, even though they had gluten challenges all, all over their six-week period, basically stayed at a baseline as far as markers of inflammation and symptoms. So it's, that's pretty good news. It seems promising. But remember, this is a phase two study only for six weeks in a, in a small group of patients. Uh, we're obviously going to need much larger phase three studies and much longer period. My guess is the FDA will probably require these guys to do at least a year-long study because you'd want, you know, you'd want something like that to make sure that patients have continued benefit and there's no unusual side effects uh, uh, that comes along. The other thing I think that really needs to happen is, you know, remember children and adolescents are, are just as likely to get celiac disease as adults. I don't know if the company is going to go forward trying to do a study, at least in adolescents. I think given the, the almost certain safety of this medication, again, considering it's not absorbed, um, I would hope that the, the company making this, this medication would consider doing a study in adolescents. Um, it, it, it seems to me that, that children and adolescents who are diagnosed with celiac disease are at an even higher disadvantage from, from a, you know, a psychological uh, impact because, again, you know, they can't eat all the foods that their friends are eating. They can't go to McDonald's when their friends are going to McDonald's, um, you know, and things along those lines. So I, I think that, that uh, that's something to really kind of keep in mind that, that I think the, the psychological and social impact on adolescents is probably higher than it is in adults. And so I would I'd really like to see them do a study in adolescents as well as adults. We'll see how that goes. Um, again, will it work and will it be safe? It remains to be determined. Um, but, but it certainly seems that in the small study that we might have a, have a real uh, a powerful weapon uh, to treat celiac disease. Now, many people have argued, well, I mean, you know, there's a simple treatment for celiac disease, just don't eat gluten. But as I've pointed out before, uh, that, that can really uh, hamper somebody's ability to have a social life. Um, and and it, it can be difficult and expensive to do, especially because, you know, things as, as you know, as small as, as, you know, medications may have a small amount of gluten in it. And this study kind of proves that people with true uh, celiac disease don't need much gluten to get, get 
into trouble as, as at least as far as their small bowel is concerned. So, you know, yes, certainly if you have no problem maintaining a gluten-free diet and you have celiac disease and you're like, I don't need to take this because I've really gotten used to, to a gluten-free diet and that's just all I eat. I think that's perfectly reasonable. But I think there's a lot of people out there with celiac disease who, who really struggle to maintain a, a, a gluten-free diet. And I think this may, may be a promising therapy for them. Uh, again, depending on one thing, of course, is the price. And it'll be very interesting to see if this drug makes it to market, how, how expensive it's going to be. Uh, my guess is that this is going to be a drug that won't be covered very well by insurance because, of course, insurance companies will say, well, just maintain a gluten-free diet. You don't take, need to take this drug. Just maintain a gluten-free diet. And they won't see the, the impact, uh, the social, social or psychological impact associated with it. And, of course, it's this, you know, they won't see the, the increased cost of, of maintaining a gluten-free diet compared to, to those who don't. And so I, my guess is it's going to be difficult to get insurance companies to pay for it, but we'll see what happens. Now, there's other therapies in work and in various stages of development for celiac disease, but most of them are anti-inflammatories. Most of them are anti-inflammatories similar to mesalamine that target the GI tract, uh, but some of it is absorbed. So I think mu- uh, there's a lot of concern about long-term safety of these medications um, to see if, if uh, you know, again, when you when you have a, uh, systemic anti-inflammatories for, for, you know, years or decades, will that increase the risk of cancer or other problems? Whereas this really is, is, is probably from a safety point of view, probably one of the most safe therapies that is likely to come out for, for celiac disease. So we shall see what happens. Um, again, you know, the, the paper is in the show notes. You can take a look. Um, I actually t- tried to take a look before uh, the, we recorded this podcast uh, to see if they're recruiting for phase three studies. Uh, couldn't really find a whole lot, though it seems to be mostly uh, based out of the Mayo Clinic. So again, if you could go, to, you could probably go to the Mayo Clinic's website and take a look at their open studies. And who knows, you might be, uh, if you have celiac disease, uh, you might be a candidate for being in this study down the road, which is kind of interesting. So, so that's it for this week's Game Changers. Time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thank you, Dr. Wall. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, sign up today to get CE each week just for listening in. See the show notes for more information. We'll talk to you next week on the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast.